diversion. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hallelujah. So, we last week... We're supposed to start this series, and, and I felt uh, led to speak something different, and so we're starting this series this week, and uh, sometimes in June, July, and August, uh, the joke that some of us minister types make um, is that you call it barely church, kind of you never know kind of what's happening Sunday by Sunday, and so many of the series that we plan uh, have, they kind of stand alone each, each sermon, but we're calling it junk drawer, and I know you all have a junk drawer. And some of you, when I introduced this concept last week, you said, I don't have just a junk drawer. I've got like a junk room. Or some people say like a whole place, we, you know, the corner of shame. And the place where, uh, so picture it as a drawer, you, you, you pull open that drawer, you're looking for something, and you're either going to find a hidden treasure, but you're certainly going to find things that you say to someone else, can we get rid of this? So I have something with me, and you can pass it around as you're listening. There you go. Keep you awake for time. And I'm just going to say, what's this for? All right? Do I need to keep it? You ready? Can you catch Dave? I know Dave can catch this back. Um, so pass that around. And don't yell it out or anything. I'll tell you if I remember at the end what that is for. And I will warn you, you will at the end go, well, how on earth were we supposed to know that? Okay? But it's something you see every day. That's the clues. You got it? So... One of the things that is interesting to me is that if you're talking about something that is either, like, do we still need this anymore? Can we get rid of it? In our world, faith is one of those things, like religious faith. And in some ways, you'd say Christian faith is one of those things. Do we need this or can we get rid of it? God bless you guys. (laughs) Yeah, take care. Um, Do we need this or can can we get rid of it? And for some people, um, not all evidence points this way, but certainly if you travel through Western Europe, um, you can see all those old churches that are mostly empty, and you can you would come to the conclusion that people have determined that faith is kind of a we can get rid of this thing, or certainly in the way that it used to be lived. Is faith worth keeping? There's a couple of postures that I want to outline in terms of how people might answer that question. I read a book a couple of months ago. I referred to it probably in a sermon or two, but it's a picture of it is up top there. It's called Enlightenment Now. There's a Harvard professor named Steven Pinker, um, not a man who ascribes to religious faith of any kind. He's fairly uh, strong, uh, I guess he would say atheist, uh, but he has some really, really great things to say. I like his writing. I think he has a good, sharp mind, and uh, he likes to kind of counter some cultural assumptions that I think are good. 
we need we need uh, more conversation in terms of faith with people who don't believe, and we need to be able to listen as well. He has a lot of good things to say. The book, this is his recent book called Enlightenment Now, and the argument that the book makes is that this is the best time in history in which to live. So he's kind of countering what people can do and say, like, all oh, things used to be better. And, but he's a charts and graphs guy, too. So it's a big, thick book like this, and it's full of charts and graphs. Each chapter kind of faces a different thing or looks at a different concept. Um, he looks at health. He looks at violence. He looks at all kinds of things. And he basically says, by almost every measure, and he's talking about the Western world. He's aware that there's crises in the world and war and whatever else. But his central argument is, by almost every measure, this is the best time in history in which to live. He's not stupid, so he will say, look, I understand there are things like wealth inequality that is expanding, that's, a diff- that's difficult. He talks about climate change and other things that he says obviously need to be addressed. But he says, this is the best time in which to live. And from his worldview, his philosophy, he's going to say, and it started to get better during the Enlightenment. So that's why the book's called Enlightenment Now. He will go as far to say, it started to get better when people stopped being religious. So it's a good, it's, it's a, it's a well-reasoned argument. My kind of response to the book is he doesn't have a lot of time for the realization. He's smart that he would know this. He just chooses to leave it out. That things like public health, human rights, so hospitals, you know, human rights for all, uh, stopping child labor, even not entirely, but some anti-slavery things. Uh, many of these things were motivated by religious faith. The idea that people are created equal. Many of these things that we now uphold as these wonderful, and they are virtuous things, had their roots often, not always, in Christian understanding. In fact, really good uh, theorists will point out the Enlightenment would not have been possible without religious faith. So there, I'm not totally sold on his book, but uh, he's angered people on the right and the left because he says that people on the right, so that's more conservative people, have their own doomsday scenarios, and people on the left have their doomsday scenarios, and his argument is that there's no real doomsday, things are getting better. So people on the right's doomsday scenarios are moral, people are so bad they used to be better, right? You know that, that's the conservative kind of mindset. People on the left their doomsday scenarios tend to be more environmental. Actually, both have, have, have uh, they're upset at different people. So that's one kind of posture for, is faith valuable? And he would say, it's not really that valuable. We can get rid of it. There's a second posture or perspective, and I mention it just briefly in the words at the bottom. So you could, and I could test you right now, do you, do you generally agree with Steven Pinker, or do you think, no, 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 and I won't go through? I have a feeling that I could predict who would land where, but anyway. Um, because the other posture is, they're both overstating things, but the other posture is to say, no, everything is terrible, and things are getting worse. Sometimes with that posture, there can be a call to get back to the way things used to be. So you would not agree with what Steven Pinker is saying, and you would say, no, Today is kind of bad. We need to get back to what it was before. There's value in this, and sometimes it's true. But the first one at its worst, the idea that things are just getting better, at its worst, which is not what Pinker's arguing for, it can lead us to be blind to real problems. 
The second posture, things are terrible and getting worse, can lead to some real problems as well. I should have put the word up there because it's a great word to know. And many, most of you or all of you would know the word xenophobic. It starts with an X. Any word that starts with an X is wonderful. Xenophobic. Basically, which is like, in a way, fear of the unknown. And so this kind of phobia, what happens is, if you lived in North Vancouver 40, 50 years ago, and you thought things were great then, you kind of have an idealized view of the world. Now, if you feel like things are getting worse, you might look around and go, I feel like things are getting worse. Why might that be? Oh, there's all kinds of people here who didn't used to be here. Immigrants, whatever. And then you might become xenophobic. You might think that the way to move forward is to protect something. And so you might look and say, no, we can't get rid of this. In fact, we have to go back. What do people think of the Bible would be another question. And one of the answers would be, not much really. Even Christian people, and don't worry, I won't do this, but I don't know if I could predict this one. This one would be harder to predict. How many of you actually read your Bibles? How many of you read? Don't put your hand up, please. I'm not calling people out. Like each day, every day, most days, sometimes, never, whatever it might be. There's a, it is partially true that culture as a whole has said, they've opened that junk drawer, found a Bible, and gone, uh, we can get rid of this. And so for us, speaking from the Christian faith, that's an interesting thing to consider. There are many cases, this might fit into some xenophobic, xenophobic things, where people actually say, um, no, we need to get back to the Word of God. Something like, we need to stand on the Ten Commandments, and they would pan the, pound their fist, right? We need to build a, a statue of, of the Ten Commandments. The interesting thing is, not all, but in many of those cases, the people who are pounding their fists, if somebody says, can you name what the Ten Commandments are? They get stumbled before they get to like four. So there's something different going on than simply, we need to get back to Scripture. And then we hear Richard read for us this morning, All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for rebuking, for correction. All Scripture is God-breathed for encouragement, for life. And I believe this. I love reading Scripture. I have mostly faithfully read Scripture since I was a young person in high school. There's times, I don't feel as bad now if I have a slight dry time, if for a few days or more, it's like, oh, well, whatever, or I forgot. Or, but basically, this is now a discipline that's in my life, and it's just part of my life. Lately, I've been listening to Scripture. So every morning, I put some headphones on, and I might, like, do dishes while I'm doing this or water the garden, because I find it actually easier to listen sometimes when I have an ease, a, a distraction that doesn't require my mind. And so I'll listen to a psalm and an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading and some prayers in between. It's beautiful. So I strongly believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. But I also think that at times the way we handle Scripture is we take something that is maybe not useful in the same way that it used to be, and we try to push it or hang on to it. So let's go to a text to say, all Scripture is God-breathed. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. You ready? I'll read the whole thing. I've just put up the end for you. When people have a dispute, they're to take it to court, and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. You like that? If the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes that the crime deserves. But this is really early stuff. This is before a real legal system in courts. And 
But the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes. If the guilty party is flogged more than that, your fellow Israelite will be degraded in your eyes. Isn't that interesting? In other words, don't make the punishment too severe because it's degrading. And then this verse that seems to not fit. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Well, maybe that's maybe we don't need that one. I'll get back to it. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her. Right? So she's married to someone, he dies. Now the brother, if he's unmarried, must marry her and fulfill his duty as brother-in-law. The first son she bears, she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if the man does not want to marry his brother's wife, you following me? If, if so, husband dies, wife's here, he, she's supposed to, he, the brother is supposed to marry her. If he doesn't want to marry her, right? Um, she shall go to the elders of the town at the gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. There's not a lot of things of like, what if she can't stand the brother-in-law? But anyway. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. And if he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals and spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up my brother's family line. This is the word of the Lord. You didn't say it, see? Because you don't know, is this useful or not? What do we do with this? This is by no means the craziest text that you could find. And they're not all in the Old Testament. What is going on here? Can we get rid of this? Is this junk drawer stuff? Well, it is at least this. It has about it justice and disputes. It's the precursor to what we know now as a legal system and courts. There's the notion in there that is very uh, Christ-like, that says, do not degrade another person, even a person who has committed a crime. Might we hear those words in our culture today? Do not degrade another person, even a person who's committed a crime. So when I watch the news and I hear people refer to other people as monsters, I go, oh, that doesn't really fit with my faith. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That has to be, we can get rid of this. And mostly you can because I don't think you have a lot of oxen treading out grain. Right? So you don't need that verse. But how about this? Why would that be said? Don't degrade another person. In fact, even an animal who's working for you and producing something for your livelihood, don't muzzle them while they're achieving this labor. Let them eat as well. Maybe those of you who have employees... Maybe those of you who are in work situations, there are things you can hear from this. And then it goes, and this is so like the Bible, and so I will be careful with this, and people who have misunderstood Scripture and used it improperly have done some damage here. It goes from the oxen to the woman. So this is a bunch of rules. Don't do this with oxen. Now don't do this with women. It is true that in Scripture... In, in Old Testament scripture, much of it, but it's because of the culture of the day. As an oxen was property, so was a woman property. Thanks be to God, we have moved mostly from that understanding, though there is a ways to go yet in terms of rights of women. But a woman was property. A woman did not have the same rights, and she was not thought of as equal. The scripture, interestingly enough, takes that into regard and says, 
Who will care for this woman because there's no social safety net? She has no rights to achieve many things on her own. So that's why it was the brother's got to marry her, otherwise she's abandoned. If you're trying to figure out marriage from the Bible, you're not going to have an easy time. Has anybody told you that? And if you ever argue for traditional marriage, you're going to have a pastor like me say, I don't think you actually want traditional marriage. And you're going to say, yes, I do. And I'm going to say, okay, even from the Bible, what's traditional marriage? In the Bible, in the Old Testament, traditional marriage is a woman is the property of a man. I don't want that. I don't think you want that. So you're arguing for something slightly different. Of course, what's taught to us by Jesus Christ is very different than this. We'll get to that. In this text, the woman ought to be cared for, not abandoned. So then we hear, all scripture is God-breathed. But if you watch how I navigated you through that text, it's an example. I navigated you through that text in a way that you could help, that I hope you're helped to see, oh, there are things in how we read this that we, that we leave behind to some degree because we're not living back in that time. Anytime we're talking about something like marriage from the Bible, we have to see that it's much more complex than saying something like, let's just get to, back to what we know. And for me, the interpretive key, and I'm telling you this needs to be the interpretive key for you, okay? For me, the interpretive key for Scripture is this. The Bible is the word about the word. In Scripture, the living word is Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the word about the word. So if you make anything else more important than that, you've misinterpreted from a Christian perspective. So I'm able to read a text like this and say, Okay, Lord Jesus, what do I know about you? Now how can I read this text in light of that? And it starts to make sense. I discovered that a lot of people in Christian circles think in a certain way. I discovered this when I was younger, but I still see it. And it, it might be that the term Christian is not the best way to describe the way that we can often live our religious lives. If your primary concern is religion or morality or law, like uh, religious law, and you're generally upset that the world has kind of turned their back on, you know, these good things, the model becomes good and bad and right and wrong. And you have an idea that the world has chosen wrong, turned their backs on God, and so we need to get back to right. What happens is, in that model of understanding, Jesus comes and is a means to an end. Jesus will get us back to right. Understand? That's a religious way of seeing the world. It's not a primarily Christian way of seeing the world. Christian faith at its heart has not rightness at the end, but Jesus himself. Very different. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is indeed the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. This will be the interpretive key for how you discern this junk drawer kind of thinking. The struggle for us in this is not new. Jesus faced it in his day. People were basically, they knew the way things were supposed to be. And when that was offended, they had a challenge, particularly if Jesus was offending it. So his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And what did the religious people do when that happened? They said, well, you can't possibly be the Messiah because you're breaking the rules. And what did he say? He said that he was the fulfillment of the law. In other words, if you want to understand the rest of the text, the rest of Scripture, the rest of rules, the rest of everything, you have to look to Jesus Christ. You can't make him the means to an end. 
And he did, and I'm careful in saying this, I don't feel it as sacrilegious so I can say it, Jesus gave a bit of a junk drawer sermon. And it's the Beatitudes, or it's the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes. One of the places we have it is Matthew chapter 5, starting there. Because Jesus would say over and over again, he would say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So I picture that in this metaphor, Jesus opening it up and us going, opening it, what's this for? You've heard that it was said this, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, don't kill. But I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. Don't cancel him or her out, your brother or your sister. In light of the Deuteronomy example, Jesus is going to teach on marriage and divorce and sexuality. So in Matthew chapter 5, I think, well, he speaks about divorce. And as a young person growing up in a fairly conservative church, like a Baptist church, I remember thinking, wow, divorce is like really bad. And back in that time, if you were divorced in some circles, it was kind of, you weren't quite as acceptable. It was a rough kind of thing. And as a young person working at my own faith, I started, and, and I read the Bible. That was a problem for some people because I read the Bible and I knew the same verses they were using. And so then I read Jesus teaching about divorce. And he says in this same sermon, he says, you've heard it said you can divorce a woman if you give her a certificate of divorce. Again, she was basically property. So all you needed to do was say, done. And what does he say? But I say to you, if you do that, you turn her into an adulterer. Now, my, the way that was taught to me was this really rigid religious understanding. So divorce is bad all the time, terrible, wrong. And then words like adulterer make that. And then I started saying, no, what, what, wait a minute. Just like don't be angry with your brother because anger cancels him out, don't treat another person this way. It wasn't so much like religious code thinking. It was, are you serious? You're gonna, that's another person right there. And you're going to say, I'm done with you. It's a call to love and compassion and something different, higher. So when I was growing up, and young people get this all the time, I was told the Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You're trying to avoid adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. So as a young man growing up, I was taught this kind of way, right? And I started to realize there's more going on with this than if you look at a woman lustfully. What people would teach me was that was about appetites, sexual appetites. And she's bad somehow if she seemed to generate that by wearing the wrong thing or some silly thing like this. Ridiculous. And I'm bad for feeling that. But when you read the text, you start to see again, what does look lustfully mean? Do not treat another person as if they are there for your appetites. If you look at somebody like that, you've already committed adultery. You're trying to avoid breaking the law, but if you do it like that. And now in this day and age, in the Me Too era and everything that you've seen on the news, can we hear that again? If you look at another person and you think they're not really a person, they're just a thing for, my, for me achieving something in my appetite, for my gratification. There's lots here, but listen again. The Bible is the word about the word. What did Jesus say? How did he live? How did he treat people across these lines? And you'll start to be able to make sense of the things 
that you pick it up and you go, what's this for? But always the interpretive key is Jesus Christ. Where's that little thing that we were passing around? Did it make it around yet? Anybody? Just, I can only ask for like two quick. Is anybody pretty convinced they know what it is? Nobody knows. Any, any quick guesses? Oh, like a clip. Yeah. Yeah. found this. When I replaced the windshield wiper some time ago on one of the cars, I went and bought windshield wipers, and they came with like a number of extra one of ones of these because it's cheaper for them to rather than make it specifically to say if you have this car, use this clip. If you have so it's brand new and it's just beautiful and wonderful. And that's what it's for. But anyway, there you go. Our interpretive key for Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the word about, or that the Scripture is the word about the word, about Jesus Christ. The world does not need more religion. The world does not need us opening up some drawer where we're trying to figure out where, what things are and saying, we need to get back to this. The world does not need more religion. The world needs more Jesus. You walk around and you see sometimes still those indigo bookstore bags that say the world needs more Canada. I think it was Bono, the musician, who said that, and then uh, it gets printed all over the place. I'm not saying that we print the slogan, the world needs more Jesus on a bag, but I will say this, and I know it with all my heart, it's true. But knowing the word in Scripture is much more than knowing the religious code. So here's the exercise as we end. Allison's going to play a song for us, and I just, it just prayerfully try this, okay? I can't direct this. I can't make it happen. I'm asking us to continue to grow in our understanding of religion and faith, that this is not primarily about right and wrong, black and white. This is about trusting in Jesus Christ and his love for the world. He is the fulfillment of the law. I have not come to abolish the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't cancel those things out, but he sure takes them and says, you were using this wrong all along. You can't use religion against people and pretend that Jesus Christ has asked you to do that. So, in our final exercise as Allison plays, I'm going to ask you to do one simple thing, and that's just pray. Lord Jesus, make my faith about you, not about all these other things. Lord Jesus, make my faith about you, not about all these other things. If you can picture yourself sitting at the feet of Jesus or in his company, it might help. Lord Jesus, make my faith about you, not about all these other things.